Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success. And practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome to the latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Wow, we've got an exciting uh, show for you today. Uh, this is Tuesday, May 7th, 2013, and I am coming to you live from the global headquarters of the Charities Aid Foundation of America. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. Just a reminder here on page one news that when we get to our page two expert, you can call in as the host or the announcer just mentioned, but you can also join us over in the chat room if you would like to ask questions there, or you can email me your questions today at tedhart at tedhart.com. First up here in the radio links, uh, which you can find over at tedhart.com, you can follow along with all the radio links. Uh, This comes to us from USA Today. Hotmail, it's officially dead. Microsoft has shifted to Outlook. Uh, The company has just recently announced that it completed the transition from the email service to the new Outlook.com, which now boasts uh, over 400 million accounts. So if you are an old Hotmail uh, aficionado, you are now over on Hotmail. Uh, Along with a more modern interface, the Outlook email client introduces several features, Uh, such as a two-factor authentication, an updated calendar, and app integration with the cloud service SkyDrive and Skype. So lots of integration there. New service uh, for you over at Outlook.com. Follow along over in the radio links today, and you'll also find a new service over at Facebook. Facebook has its new Trusted Contacts service. Uh, They've enabled a privacy feature called Trusted Contacts. You can read about it over in the radio links at tedhart.com. This allows you to select three to five confidants from your friends list to receive a virtual key to your account. If Facebook is compromised by hackers or you forget your password, these people can supply the codes to get you back in. So uh, they first announced Trusted Friends uh, back in October of 2011. However, they were uh, testing the service in 2012, and now they have uh, rolled that out. So you can read about all the details and how you can uh, begin using the Trusted Friends, Trusted Contacts service of Facebook for your program. Uh, Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach um, radio show, 
comes to us from TechSoup.org. The uh, folks over at TechSoup are providing today a disaster planning and recovery guide. Uh, so you can go to the radio links today and read all about the fact that uh, from TechSoup's perspective, most organizations don't think about disaster planning until it's way too late. Uh, they've recently revised their content in their disaster planning and recovery services over at TechSoup.org. You can read all about that and get the information that you need to make sure that your organization is ready uh, to for any eventuality of a disaster. Uh, next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, it's my pleasure to uh, uh, bring to uh, the Nonprofit Coach a good friend, Gretchen Williams. Uh, Gretchen is out there in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and she's got a big event uh, coming up uh, next week that I'm very proud to be part of. Uh, welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach, Gretchen Williams. Thank you, Ted. I really appreciate being able to be on the show. Gretchen, it's great to uh, to have you uh, here. You are the Albuquerque Director of Development for NDI New Mexico, uh, but more importantly for our purposes today, you're also involved uh, with the organization of a big training event taking place in Albuquerque, New Mexico on May 16th. Tell us all about it. Absolutely. I'm on the board of the Association of Fundraising Professionals here in our uh, New Mexico chapter, and uh, I am with our education and training uh, division. And so we put on a conference every single year and try to bring in uh, speakers that uh, can speak from a national and an international level, really bringing skills uh, to our membership and being able to uh, address interesting topics over the course of the day. So we're really excited. This year is uh, on May 16th. And you, of course, are going to be talking about social networking and fundraising success, which I think is such an interesting topic, and I'm looking forward to it. Lots of new information that uh, nonprofits should have. Uh, is it still possible for folks to register for this event? It sure is. Uh, we have everything uh, on our New Mexico chapter page. So if people just visit afp-nm.org, there's some great links right there that talk all about um, the content of the conference, how to register. Uh, we even have a price break for members. So it really is an attractive thing to Terrific. And anybody who needs that link can go to tedhart.com, click on radio links, and we have it all in the radio links for this show. Um, so I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to be of service to the AFP New Mexico chapter. I'll be out there, as was just mentioned, on May 16th for the Social Networking and Fundraising Success Training Program. Gretchen, thank you so much for inviting me, and I look forward to seeing you and all of our friends in Albuquerque next week. Wonderful. We look forward to hosting you here in New Mexico. You bet. Take care. Uh, that's uh, Gretchen Williams, who's with the AFP New Mexico chapter. Read all about the training program planned for May 16th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, for all of you who are wondering, uh, with uh, all the video that's over at YouTube, what are people watching? What, uh, what are the topics and issues that people are most interested in, and how can that help your nonprofit understand what is trending? Well, a new service, uh, YouTube is now mapping out video trending uh, across the United States. We've got a link for you over in the radio links today from Mashable.com. Mashable, as we always say, being one of the smartest websites on the Internet, uh, will bring you up to date on exactly what is trending, what is popular uh, in videos nowadays over on YouTube. So check all that out uh, over in the radio links today. We also want to draw your attention and a special shout-out uh, to uh, to our friends uh, over at uh, um, the uh, uh, Google, uh, Google for Nonprofits. We also have a link uh, in the radio links uh, today for uh, Google for Nonprofits. And a little bit later on the show, we'll share with you some information on how you can become part of uh, the Google Nonprofits program. They provide a lot of free services uh, to nonprofit organizations, and we certainly think you should check that out. Uh, so the full link is in the radio links today at tedhart.com. And then just a special shout-out also to our good friends uh, over at Fundraising Success Magazine. Uh, we want to thank everybody over there at Fundraising Success uh, Magazine uh, for the promotions that they have provided today uh, for our Page 2 expert and for all the radio shows here on the Nonprofit Coach. They're good partners good friends, and they provide you with a great deal of information over at uh, fundraisingsuccessmag.com. So check that out. It is now time for us to head on over to our Page 2 expert. 
Claire Costello is uh, the National Philanthropic Practice Executive for Philanthropic Solutions at U.S. Trust Bank of America Corporation. Ms. Costello is a recognized expert in philanthropy. Her reputation results from her involvement with a variety of nonprofit ventures and her extensive work assisting high net worth individuals and families in identifying and fulfilling their philanthropic ambitions. She supports clients by making a broad range of philanthropic decisions concerning the implementation and execution of their giving strategies and is responsible for providing thought leadership and identifying best practices for both philanthropic families and nonprofit institutions. Previously, Ms. Costello founded and managed the Citigroup Private Bank Global Philanthropic Advisory Service. She also uh, practiced law as a litigator and, uh, in both the public and private sectors, prior uh, to which she clerked in the U.S. District Court. Ms. Costello is a graduate of Amherst College and New York University School of Law. And most importantly for us, uh, we are thrilled to welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Claire Costello. Thank you so much. Good morning to you and to all your listeners. Well, thank you so much. Well, we really, really appreciate um, you taking the time to be with us today because uh, you are uh, part of the Bank of America High Net Worth Philanthropy Study uh, this is a very important piece of work that you folks do. Um, so why don't we start off with um, telling us a little bit about um, the study itself. We want to break down and find out what we have learned in this study. Uh, but why does Bank of America do this in the first place? Well, we think it's really important to really understand the uh, fabric of the marketplace um, and how the philanthropic exchange works, particularly among wealthy households. Uh, this is a great concern to us because the top 3% of well holders in the country give a disproportionate amount of the charitable dollars that are given away each year and as a result of that have a disproportionate uh, impact or influence over how our social, economic, and environmental agendas unfold both within our communities and by extension uh, across the country. And before we dive too deeply, I do want to give a shout out to our research partners um, in this undertaking. This is uh, part of an ongoing research series that commenced in 2005. It's a biennial study that we release, um, and we we do so in conjunction with the School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. So uh, together we devised the, the, the survey questions, and we, we um, send out 20,000 surveys across the country. Uh, it's a blind survey. Um, we, we, we target high net worth zip codes, uh, and then we crunch the data and, and report out as we're doing today. So it's, it's, the only, it's the largest and most comprehensive study of its kind that really attempts to look into the black box that is the high net worth household, looking not only at demographics, how much they have and where they give it to, but why they do so and what they're looking for from the nonprofit partners they engage with, um, what makes them stop giving, what's the role of religion, who helps them decide, and all sorts of aspects of um, the giving process for wealthy households. Yeah, well, I, I want to just echo, I mean, this is the, the largest and most comprehensive. It's quite an undertaking. An awful lot of work goes into this. And, and obviously there are benefits to uh, Bank of America and the folks who are working with high net worth individuals to know this information. But more importantly, you provide this as uh, a resource to the entire philanthropic community that allows everyone uh, to have insight into a population that we all would like to know more about. Uh, and as you said, this is part of a series of reports, and so over a period of time, it becomes even more valuable than just the um, single year or biannual, as you said, uh, report that uh, that comes out. So specifically today, we're we're talking about the most recent report, which is the 2012 Bank of America Study of High Net Worth Philanthropy, which we have provided a link in the radio links today uh, for that service. And on that link, um, if you scroll down, you'll be able to see uh, the 2006, 2008, and 2010 reports. So this is quite a body of work. Um, why don't we start off by uh, talking about some of the trends that you've seen over that time, and then we'll talk specifically about what the most recent report says. Sure. Um, as, as you rightfully point out, the, the study each time we do it, each iteration, looks at both um, you know similar issues that we've probed previously so as to establish some longitudinal analysis, but also each time we look into new areas that might be more current um, to, the, to the research or to the survey year. And in this case, we looked at, for example, political contributions, which we had not probed before, but given that we were launching uh, in the election season, we thought that was kind of timely. So the study in each iteration is sort of a mixture of um, long-term uh, trend data as well as more current 
you know, perhaps one-time inquiries. So what we see over time is that um, high net worth households remain committed to giving. Um, to, uh, our 2012 study reveals that wealthy households, 95% of wealthy households engage in charitable activity. That is down slightly from 98% uh, when we did the study in 2010. But given the precipitous drop in the economy in the intervening years, um, we actually think that's rather that's rather rather a solid figure at 95%. Particularly if you juxtapose it with some of the other indices that chart the downturn, like the unemployment index and and some of the stock indices and certainly the GDP and others uh, that really um, you know, set out the parameters for how deep the recession was. The fact that giving dropped, um, you know, only 3%, we think, is quite promising among the wealthy. Now, I don't mean to, to minimize, you know, the dollars behind that 3%. I know they're valuable um, to the nonprofits who seek them from these households. But, but again, it, relatively speaking, I just want to put in perspective that that's still a fairly solid figure, and I think it's safe to say that virtually all house, wealthy households do engage in giving. And by point of comparison, that 95% compares to about 65% of the general population being engaged in charitable activity. That 95% uh, that give give at approximately 9% of their annual income. That's held steady over time, and that's really a significant thing to focus on for a moment. That 9% um, of, of annual income was given away uh, in 2012, but it was also given away in 2010. So, again, notwithstanding the economic downturn, they're still giving at roughly the same levels. Now, 9% of less is less, right? and it may translate into fewer dollars, but significant that the commitment is manifest in that they're holding steady when they had arguably every reason to scale back on the percentage that they're giving away annually. Sure, and it may actually even reflect a little bit more of a sacrifice um, by holding steady uh, the percentage of uh, of giving. Um, that's really quite impressive. So what you're finding is is that uh, while they're among the most fortunate in our society, they're also uh, pretty consistently giving back. Correct, and, and you know we asked for the first time uh, in the last survey where they saw their giving levels going forward in the next three to five years, and remarkably, 76% forecasted that their giving would either remain the same or actually increase. 24%, nearly a quarter. Uh, again, they, the survey, just to give you a perspective, uh, was taken by the respondents in the summer of 2012. So um, the the headwinds were still quite strong. Fiscal uh, policy very much uncertain. Certainly, tax policy was uncertain. Um, and notwithstanding that, fully 24% predicted that their giving levels would increase going forward. 52% indicated that they would remain the same. Um, and, and perhaps the, the the strongest indicator or bellwether of the commitment of wealthy households to the nonprofits that they care most about is the volunteer rates. The volunteerism rate jumped to 89% in our last survey. That's up 10% since uh, the 2010 survey, and it's up 14% since the 2008 survey. That, that's really so, impressive. What Did you get some insight into why volunteerism would, would take a step up? Uh, we didn't probe that deeply into the why, just the where, uh, and, and, and sort of what motivated them to some extent um, or what, what satisfaction they may have derived. Is it opportunity to work with family, opportunity to engage about things that you care most about? And all of those did show up. Um, but we have some hypotheses ranging from the fact that those who may have felt fiscally constrained perhaps gave with less dollars, wanted to compensate uh, by showing up um, and, and committing through volunteerism, in addition, we've got a, a bunch of baby boomers out there that are not going quietly into their great night and that may be informing this number, um, staying vital and active, um, perhaps with more discretionary time as they pr- approach um, retirement. So um, many factors, uh, we think, might inform that number. And, and, of course, the needs of the day, which are more acute and more visible in many communities than they had been previously. So um, as a result of the recession and now subsequently the sequester. So, you know, there's a lot that may inform that number. And, and perhaps in our next iteration, we might attempt to drill deeper into the anatomy of that, that increase. Yeah, but, but it speaks uh, or bodes well, I think, for um, what what it is that uh, – uh, is meaningful to high net worth uh, folks who, you know, certainly could take their money and and do most anything that they would like to do. They're also giving of their time. Absolutely, and we know the number one motivator, contrary to myth out there, that that folks are driven to give for tax reasons or even for personal recognition. We learn that philanthropy for wealthy uh, individuals is far has far less to do with 
uh, personal recognition and tax advantages than it does with with personal uh, fulfillment and empowerment and the ability to make a difference. The number one motivation, and it has been fairly consistent over time through these studies, is that ability to make a difference. And so one really great way to do that and actually to see the difference you're making is through volunteerism. So that kind of couples hand in hand that, you know, you really can, by showing up, you, you can actually feel tactilely the, the, the difference you're making. Well, that, that's, uh, that, that's, as I said, very impressive. But is the tax consequences of giving uh, completely insignificant or does it play some value? No, it absolutely plays a value, and and um, it is more of a factor when it comes to structuring your giving in a particular giving vehicle, perhaps a split interest trust or a private foundation or a donor advised fund, all of which carry different tax consequences and may work better uh, than another uh, vehicle for your particular financial structure. Um, in fact, we're seeing trending anecdotally um, a higher uh, use of multiple vehicles. So you may have a private foundation that spawns multiple donor advised funds. You may have a split interest trust that uh, that spills into a private foundation. And there are many, many reasons why people would use uh, multiple vehicles, whether it's to include family members, whether it's to give outside of a prescribed mission, and again, maybe it's simply just for um, tax structuring purposes. But but tax uh, considerations definitely come into play there, and they certainly come into play with respect to the timing of a gift. We did explore in the latest survey whether there is this thing called a giving season or whether that's just a creation um, uh, of of the sector. And in fact, there is such a thing as the giving season. We learned that about 47% do give either more frequently or at greater levels during the final quarter or the holiday season of the year, and that certainly could be informed, again, by uh, tax decisions. But we do ask time in and time out um, two particular questions around taxes and to, to assess the sensitivity of wealthy donors. One is around if uh, around the, the income, charitable income tax deduction, which we know uh, is has been uh, under great consideration of late. Um, and we ask if that was revoked um, and you no longer were able to receive your tax deduction for your charitable activity, how would that impact your giving? And um, about half say that it would only in, it would only affect it slightly, if at all. Um, the rest think that it would hold steady or, or, or maybe slightly decrease their giving. We asked the same question with respect to the estate tax, um, and we found that fully 95% say that it would, if the estate tax were revoked, that it would prompt them to give more. So um, we don't know. I mean, we saw the greatest sensitivity around these tax questions actually in the 2010 survey that we did. It seemed to have leveled off a little bit in 2012. Now, we won't really know uh, the impact because these are, of course, forecasted questions. We won't know um, what the true impact of tax policy is on giving levels uh, unless and until there is a change in the tax policy and there's a corresponding dip in giving, and upon surveying, respondents indicate a cause and effect. That's the, the cause and effect. It, it's been reported elsewhere that the the ta charitable tax deduction um, doesn't uh, generally uh, make a difference as to whether or not people give, but how much. So they, they need to start off by being terribly inclined. They don't make the gift uh, to get the tax deduction, but how much. Um, is there an indication in, in your report that, that that holds up as a as a thought? Um, it very well could because that again informs sort of the, some of the wealth planning that go that you know that certainly philanthropy is part of that wealth planning process. Um, but you know I, I, this study and the results of from this study have been actually used by the White House and Congress to inform both sides of this debate. Um, so you can see the you can read the data, um, I guess, as you see fit uh, to to support your your argument around uh, the impact of potential tax changes on the giving economy. So um, you know, I, I I feel if you really consider um, the number of people that don't pay or don't even file a tax return, famously pronounced by by Rick, um, Mitt, Mitt Romney during the election season, uh, to be about 47 percent. Um, and then if you take the remainder that do file a tax return, far fewer itemize their tax, um, their tax deductions. And so you're, you're talking about a relatively small pool of folks for whom the charitable deduction really shows up. And I'm swimming a little bit upstream, and I'm mindful of your audience on this, and I don't mean to minimize, again, even if it inhibits uh, $1 from being given away, that's a dollar that could have been 
spent perhaps helping somebody else. Um, but nonetheless, if you really look at the population that might be meaningfully impacted by a limit on the tax deduction for charitable contributions, it may not prove to be that big a number. Um, and again, there are studies and stats on all sides of this, and I'm not a tax wonk, and I right. and I have not studied them with great care, but but I will tell you that again, this data can be seen to support the fact that there'll be minimal impact from any tax changes or there will be a lot of impact, um, and, and I guess we just have to wait and see. But am I correct in, in that the your your study does show that the estate tax would would have an effect on on the positive side, but it, it's somewhat unclear as to whether or not the annual tax deduction would have an impact. Right. Is that a fair summary? That's, that's fair. The, the numbers with respect to the estate tax elimination are, 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 are far uh, and away um, you know, clear they're not as close a call as we see in the charitable annual deduction. Now, obviously, the folks that you're surveying um, uh, are among the most fortunate and have access to terrific uh, tax advisors like those that, that uh, they find at U.S. Trust and Bank of America. Um, what about uh, for folks who maybe don't feel that they have um, the, the same sort of wise counsel? Um, are they at a disadvantage if there's a tax change? I'm not so sure they are. It depends on how structured and how sophisticated their giving enterprise is. Um, you know, if, if if they've already committed, and this is a significant trend that we've seen, um, we, we looked at where the, the dollars went from wealthy households, and the number one um, recipient category is education. Um, second to that are giving vehicles. And, again, when I say that, I refer to the split interest trust, uh, you know, a donor advised fund, private foundation. So, um that the uh, number of households that con- contributed to a giving vehicle increased by about 3% uh, since the last time we did that study, but that 3% represents about 24% of all the dollars. And uh, that could that could represent money that is being, uh, for instance, if it's a donor advice fund, maybe money is being donated now, but, but given in the future. So is there is there a bit of stockpiling of a philanthropic future? Which which will likely inform those forecasts I mentioned earlier, where 52% said they'd hold steady and 24% would increase over the next three to five years their giving level. And that is, that may be informed by the fact that they have set up these giving vehicles, at least one if not more. Um, and of course, once committed to a giving vehicle, you can't well take that money back. So my point of that is, if you have a very sophisticated, structured giving plan, it may require the need of traditional advisors, be them an accountant, a lawyer, or a tax advisor uh, of some other sort, financial advisor. Um, if you're giving, uh, if you're a direct giver, giving from your pocket, or even, um, you know, in a simplified form of a donor advised fund, uh, you may not have to rely on outside counsel to to any great extent. Um, we are seeing. We've asked every time in our study about the reliance on external advisors, and and who you consult when making giving decisions of of, of any type. And we learned that there is has been a time. Uh, you know, over time, a swing from reliance on nonprofit personnel to a heavier reliance on traditional advisors. So there's a call to action there, really, for, for everyone in the philanthropic marketplace, particularly if you're an advisor, uh, to know that your clients are relying on you for this type of conversation, not simply a tax conversation, but really a more robust values-based uh, wealth conversation. Um, if you're a nonprofit and and you um, don't have the internal capabilities to work with donors, uh, for example, with a plan giving platform, uh, you may want to align yourselves with advisors in your community, and that's a win-win for both because many traditional advisors, frankly, are just out of their depth. Um, you know, they didn't they went to school for accounting or for law, not for philanthropy, so they may not know um, what you can teach them, and vice versa. Um, so, so there are huge, there's a huge emphasis currently on the use of traditional advisors for philanthropy, and, and that in turn is due in part, at least, to the fact that we're in the throes of the largest intergenerational transfer of wealth ever seen in the post-industrialized world. Right. One trillion dollars is changing hands as we speak today, and so many people, uh, many families, are asking what I loosely call the Buffett question, which is not how much should I give to the kid, not, but how much is too much to give to the kids. As Warren Buffett famously said that he wanted to leave to his children enough such that they felt they could do anything, but not so much such they felt they could do nothing. And so with the glut of money that's changing generational hands, 
many are stopping to consider how much ought to go to the children, and to the extent that they're scaling back on that, um, they're placing it more more emphasis on philanthropy. The third choice would be, of course, to pay it through taxes. So um, of those three buckets, and I'm oversimplifying the planning process, of course, but you've got Uncle Sam, you've got philanthropy, and you've got your heirs. So if you're going to you know, pull some back from your heirs because you think it might be just too corrupting and, and damping down the potential of those who might inherit it, um, you've got Uncle Sam and you've got philanthropy, and I've yet to, to meet anyone that would prefer to give it I was going to say, pro- probably not a lot of folks out there saying, well, right. how much more can I get? That informs the reliance on, on advisors as well, just what to do, how do I structure this money. And what that's causing to occur is that the discussion of philanthropy is moving far forward in the planning conversation. Uh, it used to be what you did with what was left. It no longer is that. It's much more pivotal to the wealth planning process, and it's much more integrated into that overarching wealth planning process. So, well, we're certainly seeing that here at uh, CAF America. As, uh, as you know, we're uh, advisors for high net worth and corporations on international and domestic giving, and we're, we're seeing the, the desire to have advice, impactful advice, uh, is growing tremendously. Yes, and that our study bears that out. There is some fluctuation. You know, one year the accountants are the more popular or more relied upon. The next year it's, it's lawyers. But, but all in all, there is this market shift toward traditional advisors. There still is heavy reliance on nonprofit personnel for perhaps the quote-unquote softer side um, of, of the giving, which is mission formation and things of that sort, perhaps identifying charitable entities. But but um, for the for the, the sort of the real nuts and bolts, there is this increased reliance on traditional advisors. Exactly. We're going to take a quick uh, station break here. We're live with Claire Costello. Uh, we're talking about the Bank of America High Net Worth Philanthropy Study. Uh, you can call in today at 347-324-3080. You can also email your questions, and we'll be right back after this break. When you have a great idea and need to work with others to bring it to life, how do you do it? Sometimes it's tough because the people you work with are in different places, with different schedules, using different devices. Google Apps lets you bring ideas to life with others. Here's how. Start with email that offers more. Gmail does more than send and receive emails. It connects people and lets you chat instantly while viewing a snapshot of your team's relevant activities and access to everything they shared with you. With Google Docs, there's only one version for everyone to work on. Share easily with the right people without email attachments or compatibility hassles. And work together on the same docs at the same time in a way that simply makes sense. Edit and interact easily with integrated social commenting. Google Calendar makes it easy to share schedules and find times to meet, and schedule or update meetings with a few clicks. Everyone can't be in the same place at the same time. But Google Apps lets you work together from any place. With multi-way video chat, you'll feel like you're all in the same room. While screen sharing and integration with Google Docs lets you work with more people from anywhere, on any device, even on your mobile phone or tablet. Work with any team at any time from any place on any device. Google Apps. Work in the future, today. To learn more, go to google.com slash apps. And of course, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we are huge fans of the Google Nonprofit Services 
and that they help a lot of nonprofits learn more about how they can succeed online with free tools uh, that are available for your organization. We also want to remind you of the upcoming shows that we have here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, next week we will be live here on May 14th at 12 noon Eastern with Mark Pittman, and he's going to be here with uh, Ask Without Fear Fundraising. Uh, following that, the week after, May 21st, Janice Gallup-Petty will be here with her new book as part of the AFP Wiley radio series here on the Nonprofit Coach, and her book is Nonprofit Fundraising Strategy. Um, due to the Memorial Day holiday, there will not be a show on May 28th, so that's a great time to catch up with all the shows that you've missed, and you can get all those shows at tedhartradio.com. Uh, we'll be back uh, as we enter into June uh, with Fundraising Power, a new book by Andrea Kilstedt. She's going to be here on June 14th at 12 noon Eastern. Uh, and with that, we're going to head right back to our page two expert here on the Nonprofit Coach. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we are live here with Claire Costello and the Bank of America High Net Worth Philanthropy Study. Claire, thank you again for joining us. I, as we were going into the break, you were just starting uh, to share some of the insight from the philanthropy report on how high net worth view the nonprofit sector, how they interact with them, and, and whether or not the nonprofit sector are, in fact, trusted advisors to high net worth individuals. Uh, give us some insight. Sure. Again, they absolutely are, and and um, you know just because the the emphasis has swung toward uh, reliance upon traditional advisors is not to the negation of the nonprofits. Um, so so one thing we do know is that again, as I mentioned earlier, the number one motivation is really uh, of wealthy donors is to make a difference, and um, we see that they do rely on the nonprofits that they support that they care about. Um, to, to sort of communicate that to them, and, and they really want to make sure uh, that whether they're giving of their time or, or, or their dollars, that it's that it's being used in a meaningful way, and that they again receive the greatest reward from their own generosity. And I don't mean by that a name on a building; I mean personal satisfaction and, and, and fulfillment. Um, and that comes also when working with families. There are many ways to round that out, um, but again, volunteerism is, is one major way. We also know. Um, we ask a question, uh, we have asked it for the last two studies, about where wealthy donors place the greatest confidence to address domestic and global issues of the day. Um, as between businesses, local and, and national and multinational, uh, as between sectors of government, Congress, uh, the, the um, judiciary and the executive branch, uh, religious institutions and so forth. And we found that 91% the most confidence was placed in nonprofit organizations. The second was uh, individuals themselves, presumably including the respondents who were completing the survey. And implicit in that to us is that there's this partnership uh, between the individuals, the donors, um, and the nonprofits that they support to really get the job done. Um, it's the Zuckerberg phenomenon, uh, Zuckerberg being sort of perhaps a more exaggerated example that I know many nonprofits wish for every day. Um, <laughs> right. But, but uh, it, it's that type of scenario. Um, and so I think that is a huge, huge endorsement, and, and I hope uh, a heartening one for profit lists, uh, given how much confidence that we're knowing, again, that wealthy donors um, have this disproportionate influence of, uh, over what happens in the philanthropic marketplace, and given that they vote nonprofits as the number one get-it-done sort of sector, um, I think that's that's a that's a major endorsement. And, and that emphasis and that partnership um, shows up in other ways throughout the study. For example, we've seen over time a definite increase in the amount given to general operations. And I think, again, implicit in that is this understanding, this deference to the expertise that nonprofits have uh, and um, for, particularly in a down market when, when people are recognizing the need to keep the lights on and the phone's ringing and so forth. But again, really the notion that the wealthy individuals that are supporting nonprofits uh, really have selected them after a due diligence process 
and they recognize their expertise and they are deferring to the wisdom and the judgment of those nonprofits to deploy their contribution uh, as they see fit. So, so the 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 um, uh, somewhat of a of a trend, or at least sort of a, a was written a, a lot about in sort of nonprofit circles, um, where um, high net worth individuals or, or corporate executives were were looking to maybe um, be seen as sort of meddling in in the uh, the management of nonprofits. What you're seeing is that they actually prefer to do their due diligence and find really well run nonprofits and to support those, and they're even willing to support general operating if they find the due diligence to bear that up. Absolutely. I mean, they do look, they have expectations, and we ask this question every time as well. And in short, um, they want everything, the donors do. But when you look at the list of what they say, what everything is, it's really pretty basic. It's just good practice. Um, it's, you know, making sure that, that it, there are sound business principles being, uh, you know, adhered to, that anonymity is observed if requested, um, that they're um, – that their privacy is not passed along, uh, that they receive a thank you note and a receipt. Um, and, yes, they are looking at overhead ratios. Um, but I would say to those organizations that, for whatever reason, have outsized overhead numbers, um, be it, you know, MAD is always an example I use um, because much of their mission was executed through the mail, uh, and therefore they have these high administrative budgets um, and costs. But if you can simply explain it, then that's fine. I mean, you know, it's not an absolute formulaic uh, check the box, but but know that particularly, again, with, with resources being scarce, um, you know, donors are looking for the biggest bang for their philanthropic buck. And if they see outsized, you know, overhead ratios, they are going to scratch their heads because they are looking. But if you have an ex- – you know, if you do, if you are in that circumstance, no panic. Just be sure that you explain that. Um, but but know, your, know yourself well, I think – one of the the messages I'm getting uh, from you is that there are high expectations that high net worth individuals have of the charities they support um, because they have high expectations of themselves. I think that's correct, and and again, they believe in the power of these organizations to do well. So so you know, and and if you need help in that regard, I mean, I, I should have said that you know behind those those high volunteer numbers again, 89 percent in the last study, you know. Forty percent of that is attributable to volunteers lending of their professional skills and know-how. And oh, that's, a, that's an incredible asset. Is. Do you think that nonprofits do a good job in making use of that? You know, I think increasingly, um, as these resources are needed, you know, to revise a business plan uh, for shrinking budgets, um, perhaps to help renegotiate a leasehold um, in, in, in this tough real estate or, or economic market, certainly marketing plans, it's becoming very important for people um, who are not internet savvy, or perhaps who are too small as nonprofits to have a really sophisticated website. There are a lot of marketing people floating around there that would be more than happy to lend of themselves. And so, so you know, keep that in mind that that what may be more valuable, and we certainly tell our donors this, may be more valuable than their dollars at certain junctures in the development of a nonprofit's life plan, um, is leveraging some of these these really critical uh, professional skills. So. Um, so, so that's another way in which they're really lending of themselves and really helping to shore up and, and address capacity building. Um, really, and, and could could for 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 the right organization even be uh, potentially more powerful in, than the dollars themselves uh, with that kind of expertise. Listen, Claire, you you're such an expert in this area, and you really know. Um, you've learned through your studies, but also through your practical knowledge. Uh, you know how to communicate and, and how to succeed with high net worth individuals because you've grown to understand what, what they need and what they desire. For our listeners today who there isn't a single nonprofit executive listening today uh, who does not desire to do a better job with high net worth um, but may not feel that they have those skills or they don't know how to communicate or, or I think for a lot of them they're afraid of just getting it wrong. Um, what advice can you give to not get it wrong? Well, I mean, you know, to me it, it's the basic um, issue of, of, of abandoning your mission for the moment and really trying to better understand the mission of, of the, the folks that you're speaking with. So, so you know, you could be, for example, representing a hospital and they could have a dire need, a, demonstra- a demonstrable need for a dialysis machine, and it could be the biggest need the hospital has, and you could make that case six ways till Sunday, but if you've got a donor that isn't the least bit interested in that, regardless of their means, it's not going to work. Um, 
So you've got to meet the donor where they live, and and you've got to figure out what matters to them. And on the the same website where we've got our our earlier studies, way back in 2006 when we first began the study, we actually broke the data down into 12 identifiable statistically significant archetypes where we identified statistically significantly different behaviors and attitudes um, across 12 different profiles, one being, for example, the devout, someone who was very religious, another being the very wealthy, one being the entrepreneur, another being the bequeather, another being the volunteer. And you'll see there that they respond to different languages. Now, that, that the data on which that's based is fairly stale uh, because it's backdated, but I think the, the principles hold steady, which is that people of different profiles respond to different things. So you can't go headlong into what you need and why and how critical the need is and what a hero he or she will be if they fill that need uh, for your nonprofit. But rather, if you begin with who they are, uh, what their mission is, um, what their profile is, and really do your homework, particularly with respect to a, a strategic donor, um, and perhaps just switch the balance of your conversation to be more one of listening than pitching, we do know that the number one reason why wealthy donors stop giving to any particular organization is because of inappropriate solicitation, which is defined as either asking for too much or asking too frequently. Now, out of fairness to the nonprofits, they were resource constrained during this period, so they may have over-asked. At the same time, the wealthy donors may have been similarly resource constrained and perhaps maybe have been more sensitive to the ask, uh, thus resulting in this dynamic of discontinuing support because they felt over-solicited. But nonetheless, they don't like it, and you ought not do it because it's going to alienate them. So see if you can change up some of your solicitations to just be um, discussions, meaningful discussions about how you as an organization have furthered the mission and perhaps a postscript about how this particular donor has enabled you to do that. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis in the fundraising world, quite understandably, around increasing donor base and acquiring new donors, often to the neglect of the existing donors. And we know from our research that the number one source of information about giving decisions is peer-to-peer. And so if you think of your current donor base really as ambassadors for you, each and every one of them ought to be equipped with an elevator speech so that when they go to their dinner parties or they're standing on the sidelines of a ball field or whatever they're doing in their day-to-day with their peers, um, they can talk about the meaningful experience they had with you uh, or they can discuss how well-placed your your gift was to that organization. And that's advocacy. Um, enthusiasm, spoken out loud, is really advocacy. And so make sure that your communications, by whatever means, really equip your donors to be able to do that for you. Um, And so to me, I I think that really making sure your communications, be them web-based, be them email, be them by letter, which, again, is another distinct thing you ought to learn about your donors, how they like to, what modality, not only the content of your communication, but the modality of it is really key for some donors. But however you communicate, to make sure that you're doing so uh, with equal parts information, at least equal parts information, as solicitation. So so I, I think that's one way in which you really can make sure that your good works are top of mind. Um, and it will certainly, as if you can demonstrate and communicate how effectively you're moving your needle, that will only prompt them to support you more because they want to be part of a successful winning enterprise. Um, and if that's your nonprofit, as you can demonstrate to them, uh, all the better. And organizing look-sees and maintaining transparency through volunteer efforts and labeling, enabling them to meet the leadership and see the good works and action of your organization can only uh, enhance that effect. And there is this time-tested correlation, not a causal relationship, but a, 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 a distinct correlation between volunteer engagement and amounts given. So that's a win-win as well. So if you can sort of engage folks around your mission uh, and, and convey to them how well you are doing with it and the needs that you have as well, um, there is this corresponding um, you know, indication of higher giving levels to that organization. Claire, first of all, I did not interrupt you in any of that because note to listeners, we just had about the most important 
um, a lecture on successful uh, solicitation of high net worth individuals in the last five minutes on this show than I think we've ever had on this show. That was absolutely brilliant. Every line that you just gave to us uh, is golden. And I think it, it really boils down to uh, the fact that if you want to speak to high net worth individuals, if you want them to uh, support your organization, it has to be highly personalized. This cannot be just part of here's my plan and this is when I send out direct mails and this is these are people who um, because of the amount that they can give and because they are volunteers have a lot to offer to your organization besides just the fact that you're going to solicit them for a gift. That's my perspective anyway. Um, I think that uh, uh, you've given us a, an awful lot uh, for people to learn from uh, in just the last few moments, and I cannot thank you enough. Um, breaking breaking that down for our listeners uh, today, um, one of the things that, that, you, that you mentioned is this relationship between uh, volunteerism and giving, and that's long documented. Uh, but you're seeing in this specific study an increase in volunteerism. That's got to portend good news for nonprofits. Yes, one would think, again, because it's a golden opportunity for them to sort of, if you will, spread their feathers and show their their, their bright colors and, and really uh, convey, uh, you know, to the, to the volunteer and the donor alike, um, you know, uh, the success that they're having um, and how that could be expanded upon with their continued support. Again, one sort of caveat to that may be that those higher volunteer numbers, as we stated earlier, um, may be informed by the fiscal constraints. So uh, in this case, it might not be as strong a correlation as we've seen, but in an overall arch, and there are some exceptions, but in an overall arch, the trajectory is toward greater donations um, when there's greater uh, personal involvement. Through. So this will be definitely something you'll want to be looking yeah, to in the next study to see if the, it bears up, if the economy uh, continues to expand. Uh, do we see that number uh, grow, go up or go down? Right, that's exactly right. And, and we are already uh, drafting our survey for the 2014 survey. It really takes us two years to turn it around. So To turn it around to, based on the analysis. Another truism I think that 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 you bore out in uh in your your uh, your important lecture that you just gave uh is um the the fact that needing money is not enough that you have to be able to state the value how well your organization is run and why it's a, what a wise investment for uh the high net worth individual to choose that charity over another yeah, I think so, and again, you know i mean. It, sometimes it's just so challenging and, and, and granular to sort of put your good works above your your sector colleagues' good works, and that's a tough one. Um, but but you know, really figuring out what their civic engagements are. This is the donor now. You know, you know what they want for the world, what their future vision is. Um, you know, what keeps them up at night, what gets them out of bed in the morning. Those basic questions, those basic issues. Um, and oftentimes, particularly with the wealthy, I find that you know this process of attainment and acquisition, and, and, and you know that is their life um, uh, trajectory, is often associated with this attenuation from who they really are and what they really care about. So we spend an awful lot of time with wealthy families, disaggregating down to core values and core interests, and then sort of building back up from there toward a mission and a purpose. And so it's often a tougher conversation than one might imagine. Um, so one thing you might do is if they can't answer those questions in the first person uh, when you're trying to find that Cinderella slipper fit between between the nonprofit and and the, the donor, you may ask sort of what they want for their children or their grandchildren because they may be better able to envision the changes they look, they look to, to affect um, through the eyes of another. So you may find out really what bothers them or what thrills them um, and, and, and get at it that way. But it really, really does need to be about them. Yeah, well, and 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 it and it seems to me that uh, in those conversations, uh, again, needing money is not enough. And and do uh, I think this was sort of the cautionary tale that you shared is that maybe far too often nonprofit organizations, instead of looking for that Cinderella fit, um, are getting the shoehorn out um, and trying to fit that high net worth individual into their immediate needs, uh, rather than trying to find a match to what the uh, the donor is looking to accomplish. Yeah, it really is counterintuitive because you as fundraisers and development officers are charged with going out there and being the bushes, but at the end of the day, it's really not about you. 
and, and, and that's sort of a tough kind of mind bend to, to, to work around, but, but it, it really isn't. Um, uh, so it, it's, it's about finding people who think it's about you. I've often um, noted that as the difference between a development officer and a fundraiser. Uh, someone who's developing the donor and developing the opportunities to give and make a difference as opposed to someone who's just trying to fundraise to meet a budget. Right. Very different things. Looking um, at the uh, uh, at the study again, um, there appears to be evidence that high net worth individuals are less likely to be spontaneous in their giving, um, and even that uh, donor decisions are, are made jointly as a group. Is that more of a family activity? I'm not sure about the spontaneity indication, but but we do know that um, that giving decisions are done uh, with great intention and and, and deliberation. Um, we asked by way of strategy, sort of, you know, do you have a strategy? Do you have an annual budget? How do you approach your giving uh, year to year um, and within that day to day? And we found that 71% report that they are actually strategic about their giving, and 61% have set aside an annual giving budget, which is really phenomenal. And what that says to anyone who's looking to raise money from these wealthy households is that they've got a plan. Um, and it may not be a calendar year plan. It may be a fiscal year plan or tied to some other family events. But but know that you've got to find out when that is because you want to be at the front end of that plan um, because, it will, as with other budgets, once allocated, there may not be any room for you. So you might want to snoop around and find out just how that works with any particular donor or donor family. And then we furthermore wanted to know what it meant to be strategic. So what does that mean? And we found that it meant that in the case of 81% that they were focused on either a finite set of geographies or on a finite set of issues. And, of course, that's where we want folks to go. Uh, we want them to move from this sort of scattershot to a rifle shot approach, uh, moving away from that sort of spray-and-pray modality so that they can really have a better chance of having impact, which, as we said, after all, is what their number one motivation is. So your idea, the idea is for you to fit into that focus of a particular uh, donor family. And so what we see is once they've identified their strategy, once they've set aside their budget, within that framework, yes, they begin to make their decisions. And we found that women in particular are part of 90% of, of philanthropic decisions in the household, either separately or in conjunction with their giving partner. Um, so what I want to say really loudly is that if you're not addressing your envelopes, to the the assuming a heterosexual household to both men and women of the household, uh, you are missing the point. Um, we have seen. I had a story recently where a, a development officer, indeed a female development officer, called the home of a, of a wealthy donor, and Mister um, wasn't home, and she said, "Oh, no worries, to Mrs. I'll call back later," <laughs> and they never got another gift. Of course. Um, because she needs to be at the fore and know that women are we, – we did break our, our, our study down for gender in 2011, and you may want to look at that at the website as well, because women are motivated, if not by different things, um, to different degrees of intensity. And one of the things that women are more motivated by than men is not only this desire to make a difference, but also the desire to, to steward good values and charitable behaviors for the next generation. Um, and as such, they become sort of more the stewards of the value set of the household, mm -hmm. and they're pivotal to these decisions. And, so and, I would and tend to always be part of that decision. This is a mister. <laughs> right, right. What sort of organizations, um, you mentioned education as being a, a, big, a big draw, um, are high net worth individuals likely to support, or, or, or conversely, are there areas that they do not tend to give? Um, well, we look at the distribution of high net worth dollars through three different lenses. One is where the number of households are giving, or how many households are giving to any particular area. The second is where the dollars go, and the third is where the largest gift goes. So, so they each yield different results. Or, uh, education garners, you know, in the sense that it garners the most, um, the, the highest number of households as well as the highest number of dollars. Um, as a recipient category, so um, we see that that's significant time in and time out. And people often sort of get cynical around that and think it's all alma mater money, and I'm sure a good percentage of it is. But I also wanted to highlight one other question we asked um, in the public policy area of our study, which is, um, you know, of all the news of the day, of all the issues of the day, what matters to you most as between the housing crisis, uh, you know, the economic downturn, the um, the deficit, 
um, you know, education, healthcare, and so forth. And education came out number one, and healthcare came number two. The economy was somewhere in the middle, and the housing crisis was was nearly dead last. And so um, that tells me that the, th- that concern over education, as a, as a just a purely you know civic issue of the day, isn't about alma mater money. That right, is- right. Claire, watching the clock here, how can uh, our guests uh, connect with you or connect uh, uh, further on the study? Um, they can certainly start by going to the website and um, and, and have a look at, at, at the wealth of information there, and, and there should be a place indicated there for them to follow up with any questions they may have. That's terrific. Well, we've been live here on the Nonprofit Coach with uh, Claire Costello, who is a National Philanthropic Practice Executive for Philanthropic <laughs> Solutions at U.S. Trust Bank of America Corporation. Claire, thank you so much for being our guest here on the Nonprofit Coach. Happy to be with you. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.